Hello. <laughs> welcome to the Science Museum, and welcome to this uh, latest event uh, celebrating uh, engineering, and welcome to the, the science of Formula One. Um, my name's Oliver Carpenter. Um, I'm a curator of technology and engineering here at the Science Museum. And before we start, I need to note that this uh, event is part of the uh, government campaign, the Year of Engineering, um, which celebrates uh, the world and our wonder of engineering. So, um, yeah, we're here to meet um, the next, well, inspire the next generation of, of innovators and engineers and, um, you know, and, 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 and get people involved in these creative industries um, to shape the world we live in. So, yeah, without uh, further ado, um, I'd like to welcome to the stage our, our panel members for tonight. Um, we have James Allison, Technical Director of Mercedes-AMG Petronas Motorsport, uh, Anastina Hintzer, Chief Operating Officer of Hintzer Performance, and Carl Sermetz, uh, principal data scientists of McLaren Applied Technologies. Welcome. So I guess we better address the first topic first. Congratulations to James. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> And of course, uh, you know, the job's only half done. <laughs> we wish you luck with the, uh, with the constru constructor's title in the, in the coming two races, which I'm sure will go your way. You. Fingers crossed. Um, so, F1 is a sport, it's uh, a business, and it's entertainment. Um, but of course, um, it's also highly advanced in the fields of science, technology, and engineering. Uh, the title of this event is The Science of Formula One. So we'll be looking at uh, where science, engineering, uh, innovative technologies, data modeling, human performance, uh, and more find their place in Formula One and where they find their way out of Formula One into the wider world and back again. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I'd like to uh, now ask our speakers to introduce themselves and say a little bit about their work. So, Carl? Great. Thanks, Oliver. Um, so, yeah, good evening, everyone. My name's Carl Fermax. Um, I'm part of uh, the team at McLaren Applied Technologies. Um, so, for most of you will know, I guess, McLaren if you're here for the F1 event. So, McLaren is actually three companies. Um, we have a, a racing team that, that go racing. Um, we have an automotive company that um, builds road cars. Um, we have Applied Technologies, which is a, the company that I'm part of. And we, um, we basically build, uh, design and build data-driven products and solutions and apply them into other industries outside of F1, but using, I guess, the, the technology expertise, know-how and some of the tricks that we've learned during our time in, in F1 and automotive. Uh, so my, my role is I, I head up a, a team of uh, simulation engineers and data scientists. So we do, I guess we develop mathematical models that underpin those products and solutions. Um, my, I guess my, my interest personally is in applying those um, techniques to healthcare solutions or healthcare problems. So we look after um, healthcare, public transport, um, automotive and motorsport applications within applied technologies. Um, I was originally a physicist, so I think I do I qualify <laughs> as an engineer? I'm not sure, but um, yeah, let's, let's go with it. Um, and um, and yeah, so moved to moved to McLaren. Uh, I've been with McLaren for um, for 11 years. Uh, part half of that time was spent in the in the race team, part of McLaren as well. So I have some experience in F1. I worked as a, as a race strategist, um, so helping advise James and people like James. Well, not James himself, but people like <laughs> in James's position on um, when to make pit stops changes, sort of operate, yeah, how to basically navigate an F1 weekend without um, um, any slip-ups. 
Um, and it's great to be, I guess, part of this event. Just on a personal note, I'm really passionate and a strong believer in um, the ability for F1 to like inspire interest and excitement in, it, in science and engineering. So yeah, great, great to be here. Okay. Hi everyone, my name is Ernestina Hinza and uh, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Hinza Performance. Um, most of you probably don't know Hinza that well <laughs> uh, as McLaren or Mercedes. Uh, we're a team and high performance company. Um, the company was originally founded by my father, Dr. Rocco Hinza, about 20 years ago. We've been working in Formula One since. And uh, yeah, today, um, as of Sunday 13, uh, World Driver Championships, uh, won by Hensa affiliated drivers, and uh, over the past four years, 96% uh, of podium places. So we've been involved in, in quite a bit uh, learning. Uh, as the technology develops, also how we look at human performance develops. And uh, it's quite an exciting journey, and great, great that you're taking this perspective into account <laughs> too. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, my name's James Allison. I'm the technical director of the Mercedes uh, Formula One team. We're actually sort of two parts. There's an engine part uh, at Spritzworth and the chassis part at Bracti. And, and my job is the chassis part at Bracti. Uh, so just one of um, several hundred engineers uh, at Bracti trying to make the best car we can to match up as well as we can with uh, what's been a wonderful power unit from Britsworth over the last few years and to take it racing and hopefully do well in championships. So thank you very much. So, um, we'll, we'll be covering uh, the main areas of our, our speakers' um, expertise throughout this next 50-odd uh, minutes, and um, we'll open up to questions towards the end. So, uh, um, there won't be many, but think of, think of a few uh, to ask our panel towards the end. Um, James, if I turn to you first, the, uh, could you talk us through the process of building an F1 car? How long does it take from design to delivery? Um, how many people are involved? You know, how does this compare to you know, a, a commercially available car that uh, you know, we'd all be familiar with? Well, it takes less time than a commercially available car, but probably a bit more time than you might think. Formula One is associated with uh, sort of agility and rapid, rapid uh, development and, uh, and, and quick turnaround. But the process of designing a new car, conceiving a new car, and getting it to go to the track and go racing is probably a little longer than you might imagine. So. We're just, we're still in the 2018 racing season, but we've already started work on the 2020 car. So it gives you an idea, but it's, it's a bit longer than you might imagine. Most of the car has around, the, most of the car you start working on with about a year to go. But if you want to, if you want to do something difficult between the chassis and the power unit, then you need to be starting a little bit sooner than that. So that's why we've, uh, we've start work already on the 2020, um, even though it's still only 2018. So around about a year uh, for most of the car. And it's, it's not like you have the whole factory just immediately jump onto a new car a year in advance of its racing debut, because you've still got to race the current car. And so what happens is that you, you just put a few people on it at the beginning of the project, uh, with roughly a year to run. And then as the months tick by uh, towards the new season, more and more and more people switch off the car that is racing on the track that you watch on the television and, uh, and transfer their efforts and their attention onto the car that's going to go racing next year. So by the time you hit August, August, September, most of the people are working on next year. So the one that is still racing on the telly now 
has been a bit of a ghost ship for uh, for a little while now, uh, and we've just raced out. This is the rest of the season, while most of our races have gone out. <laughs> so this is to all of you, really. Yeah. What do you think the most uh, important factor is uh, in F1 racing: the performance of the car or the performance of the driver? Could could a could a lesser driver win in a in the best car, or could, could and would the best driver always win in a worse car? <laughs> so, I mean, the, the 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 car is is no doubt you know, super important. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, I think it's more likely that they're not best driver winning a best car than the other way around. Um, and I think there's sort of obvious reasons for that. I guess what one interesting area where those two things start to blur, I guess, is um, you know J James talked about the the sort of the car development process. You know, both in terms of early conception and then you know, actually building it and, and iterating on it as you go. Um, and the, the driver and the sort of the team of drivers within an F1 team are a crucial part of that development. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we rely on driver feedback a lot to help sort of steer and, and direct the, you know, the direction the car goes in, like whether whether an upgrade has, has worked, whether they feel they get sort of performance in the car, whether they can, um, you know, you haven't compromised the drivability and so on. So actually, like the, the, the driver, ha as well as you know, actually driving the piece of machinery that's put in front of them, that, that sort of team of drivers and it's sort of test drivers as well as the, the race drivers, they do have a sort of an integral role to play in that design as well. So I guess the line is, is maybe a little bit more blurred than again you might might think. I tend to agree. I'm, I'm, I'm biased <laughs> in this, <laughs> but uh, I mean, even even with the best car, if you don't have a, a driver who understands the car and can feel the car and can drive the car, uh, you won't get anywhere. I, I would also like to kind of build on what you were saying about the team. It is a team effort, so it's not even just about the driver, it's also about the team. And uh, I mean, you can lose the race at a pit stop. So it's it's really, uh, it's a collective effort and it takes even more than the best driver and the best car. It also takes the best team. Well, the one thing that's quite obvious is that, um, that even a really, really brilliant driver won't necessarily win the championship in the best car. Um, because in each team there are two teammates and uh, normally the best car has two unbelievably good drivers in it uh, and only one of them wins and that's over the course of the season that's not normally luck that's normally because one of them is, is a bit better than the other so the question can a lesser driver win uh, not often is, is the <laughs> answer um, so you, you you tend to end up with the best driver in the best car, um, and it hasn't been that. If you if you look back, it's nearly always the best driver doing a good job. Yeah. Um, but there are there are championships. There are championships we can all point to where you can say that uh, that the car was utterly brilliant, and neither of the drivers in that utterly brilliant car were the best drivers on the grid. I suppose feature of the well, the last say 18 years has been su successive drivers um, dominating I at certain time periods. Um, mm. So obviously Schumacher, Vettel, Hamilton. Um, well, you know, I guess what 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 is it that that they've got that that their their teammates or or other other drivers don't have? Well, I think. best person to answer this, but you look at any sport and everyone who is a professional athlete mm -hmm. in that sport is, is a ridiculously gifted person uh, that makes the rest of us look 
pathetic. Um, <laughs> and, and, but within, within the cadre of people that are professional athletes, there is another distribution of skill, and the ones who are the champions uh, are just different. Mm. They're just different in the amount they care, uh, the amount they commit to it, and what God gave them in the beginning. And they, all those things add up to, to a, a performance that, that the rest can try as hard as they like and they won't match. And that's not just Formula One, that's every professional sport you care to look at. You'll always find someone, and they don't come along very often, but who stands out head and shoulders above the rest mm -hmm. by, by a non-trivial amount. As in any sport, combination of skill and training. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you said, determination and I think focus. And um, we work with drivers from actually quite young age. Uh, the youngest drivers we work with have been 13, 14 years old. And uh, what you can see even in these very, very young drivers is that they are just continuously amazing. They are incredibly focused. They have one goal and they're optimizing their entire lives to support them to succeed in that one goal. And it, it really takes uh, dedication from quite a young age to actually succeed. And I think that's sort of, uh, uh, that dedication combined with that talent, God, gift, um, incredible reaction times, uh, spatial awareness, um, et cetera. That's, that's something that is definitely unique to our drivers. Yeah, I mean, we were discussing a bit before the session about sort of you know, comparison between um, like F1 drivers and you know, that being at the level of sort of Olympic, you know, Olympic level athletes, you know, and that 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 uh, I think it amazes me the idea that someone can dedicate their lives to you know winning an Olympic gold, and you know, like, and then once they've done that, they go right now I'm going to do that again, and I'm going to do it. You know, it's going to take me four years <laughs> to, to get there, and I think in terms of you know the F1 drivers who, who do want to do that, who do want to win again and again, then it's, it's a similar men mentality. I mean, from, from the drivers that I've ha had the, the privilege to, to sort of work, work with a little, I think they all, the, the, the best ones really genuinely believe that they are the best. You know, they have sort of this unwavering self-belief and it relates to the, the question before about, you know, the, the drivers in different cars and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's a full grid of drivers out there who I think, fully believe that they are they are the best driver on the grid and I think they have to they have to believe that um, and, th and then I guess the other thing that sprung to mind is about the, the drivers who can really do well when conditions aren't perfect mm -hmm. so you know sometimes you know we, we, we don't do like the, the drivers justice you know the car maybe goes into a race not in its sort of optimal setup or the conditions conspire and it's you know I think the ones who can sort of you know overcome that and still get a, a good result out of it maybe a um, sort of substandard, you know, slightly less than optimal condition. I think that's one thing that sort of sets those guys apart from the others. Uh, just a, by way of small anecdote about the degree that to which they care for really great ones. Lewis just won his fifth championship last weekend in a race where we utterly sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and and you'd, you'd think, <laughs> and, and you'd think he'd get out the car doing somersaults with joy because only one man in history has done more than that and only two men in history prior had done five championships. And he got out of the car and he was, he was devastated with how badly the race went and what a lost opportunity it was. <laughs> and, and we talked about that far, far more than we talked about the, the epoch-making achievement that he had just put together. And it's because he cares that much. And he cares about it just as much now as he did when he was a boy. 
um, racing go-karts. And I think that you need that level of, of, of single-mindedness to get to the sort of achievement that people like that You've had a whole what three three days now. What, what, what was the what was the cause of the lack of performance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, is that next week's meeting? <laughs> Annoyingly, we know exactly what it was. Oh, really? And it was really easy to fix. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe no after comments. the season. I'll do it. You can tell me later. <laughs> <laughs> the competitors in the room. <laughs> okay, thank you guys. So I was thinking a bit about technologies in F1, sort of um, that have come and gone. So, uh, like uh, launch control, uh, traction control, um, like active suspension, briefly, uh, even like anti-lock brakes. So, I think for us in our road cars, you know, m most of these technologies we we see as, or they're marketed as, sort of essential safety items. Um, and you know, if they, if the technology exists, um, and if they are good for safety, what, why not? Why not bring them back into F1? <laughs> question. So I think, um, in, uh, well, I guess my, my sort of view on that is that, um, yeah, that there's a whole, there's so many different areas of, of potential innovation within F1 and have been over the years. So um, obviously, like you know, aer aerodynamics, um, mechanical design, and sort of engine performance, um, like control units, software, and, and all those sorts of things. So um, I think these sort of things come and you know, ebb and flow in and out of in and out of fashion. I think one of the um, one of the reasons, at least I think, is around the fact that what are the what are the innovations that people are really interested in? What innovations capture the imagination of the um, uh, of the public? So, certain parts of an F1 car are are standardised, and they tend to be standardised either to stop teams just throwing sort of endless amounts of, of money at them, or so in, in in the case of so one of the things that McLaren Applied Technologies does is we supply sort of the control units to all to, to, to all, all F1 teams on the grid, um, and you know. Innovation in sort of control unit. It's not something that's particularly visible to the public. Mm. Um, probably quite hard to communicate to the public and say, well, well, this team won because it had the best control unit, which I think I think is probably sort of the main factor anyway. And so I guess it's really about sort of managing yeah where where teams do spend that money and mm. where they do sort of spend that effort in terms of innovation and what, what's interesting to the public. You know, aerodynamic performance. I guess people it captures people's imagination because they can see the cars, they can see the shape, you know, the, the sort of the the rings and that sort of thing. So I guess it sort of ebbs and flows over, over time. I guess um, I was lucky to be involved in the sport in a period where uh, traction control was allowed, anti-lock brakes were allowed, all sorts of uh, electronic kit was on the car. And there was a, a sort of perception when that was getting more and more sophisticated that the that it was taking away from the skillful drivers, that it was allowing a more uh, mediocre driver to have the same skill in the wet say, as the best drivers. Um, and so it was got rid of largely on that basis because, to be honest, uh, with the standard ECU, you could provide us with traction control software or anti-lock brake software, and it wouldn't add considerably to the cost of the sport. Um, but it was got rid of because it was perceived to be uh, a driver aid that was removing the mystique and skill that the driver brings to the, to the party. In the season that it was got rid of, you could not tell the difference. The best driver was still the best driver, the worst driver still the worst, um, because their, their skills are delivered at a level that's much finer than, than, the, than the control systems that we can put on top of them. Um, 
so uh, it doesn't make much difference to the show whether or not we have these things. We might as well not have them. Um, the thing I'd like to come back, uh, perhaps not for the reasons that are immediately obvious, would be to be allowed to have movable aerodynamic devices on the car. Uh, this, uh, if you're all Formula One anorecs, as any of you are, you might remember the Brabham fan, fan car. <laughs> for the show fans, who, who would count themselves as a Formula One anorex? <laughs> that's good, that's good. <laughs> Got the um, right audience here. Well, that that car was, it made a brief appearance before it was banned because uh, it was going to be too competitive. Um, but I'd quite like to, uh, to, to let fans back on the car for the reason that I think it would be the solution to something which people care a lot about, which is that the sport has always been uh, marred by uh, a lack of overtaking caused by the dirty air um, of the car following a car. And the, the main problem of the car following a car is that the car in front steals the energy that is in the air from the car behind in much the same way as a sailing ship that sits in front of another sailing ship will stop the one that is behind from, from going. Um, and if you could have fans in the car, then you could put back the energy you were missing uh, from being behind someone. And you could, if you designed the car properly, if you specified the rules properly, then you could do that in a way that was completely uncontrived. At the moment, we have the DRS ring where you, you get drag reduction on the straight if you're a car that's following. But you have to have a detection system that figures out that you're within a certain distance. And if you're within a certain distance, then you're allowed this sort of bonus on the straight. If, however, you drove the rules in a direction carefully enough, then you could allow a car, given that they've all got batteries and they've all got electric motors in them, you could allow a car to capture the advantage that it has on a straight, because it does have an advantage when it's following, because it's got less drag. And that less drag could be captured in the form of not needing to drive its, its uh, MGK as hard, the electric motor as hard, and it could store more energy in its battery around the lap. And then when you're in the corners, that battery could be used to drive a fan. And if you got the sizing of this right, you could have a car that was completely agnostic about whether it was behind or in front. And I think that would be more fun if they were absolutely on each other's bumpers around the corners. Um, it would make for a good spectacle. Oh, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, I, I see you've got a, a box with you. Um, could you talk us through the, uh, the driver's experience from the driver's eye view, mainly the te technological interface. What, what does the driver see uh, when he gets behind the, uh, the wheel in F1 car? Okay, well, I'll, I'll open it in a minute. It's, <laughs> a steering, it's a steering wheel. But I think the main point to make about what a driver sees when he sits in a car is he doesn't see much. <laughs> um, he's sitting really low. He's sitting, his, his eye line is about there. Um, and, uh, and so nearly everything that he sees is just the front of the cockpit uh, stretching away from him and the tops of the front wheels. And the thing that we designed the car for, we put him as low in the car as we can uh, because we want the center of gravity low. But the lower we get him, the less and less and less he can see. And, uh, and so what limits where we put the driver is actually the right and left-hand side of the cockpit. We have to get the, the side of the cockpit and his head in exactly the right relationship so that he can just have a tiny squint down on that diagonal line and see the apex of the corner um, in a really pathetically bad way. And, uh, and so they're, they're driving the car 
with very, very little visual reference compared with us when we drive our cars. So most of what they see is just a load of cockpit in front of them and tires and just this little squinty view of the apex. And when you consider that they drive the things around Monaco, putting the car within inches of the wall of Singapore, when you consider how little they can see, it's absolutely breathtaking, their judgment of the width of their car. And, uh, and we consider that they're not doing this either in a sort of drive it slowly up against the wall. They're doing it with the car drifting up against the wall to an inch perfect, sometimes millimeter perfect precision. It's absolutely remarkable. But I think the question was more about <laughs> what they're looking at Tell you uh, what, from I'll a control point of view. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've probably all seen these on tellies, but um, that's, that's their interface with the car. Uh, they don't have a, a conventional sort of dash panel. They have just this little uh, screen in the middle of their wheel, um, something which is standard across the cars and provided by Carl's company, um, part of the standard ECU. And it has a, a range of displays on it, not just one. There's, as the driver's changing switches around, then it shows up different information uh, to help them go along their way. And you can see that the, the wheel is completely festooned with, with switchery. Um, and that switchery is to do things that are as mundane as giving them a drink uh, or talking to us or as, as, uh, as subtle and, and, and difficult as changing the, the differential, let's say, at the back of the car from uh, the mid, mid of the corner, the entry of the corner, the exit of the corner, in high speed, in low speed modifying the engine braking, all of which are devices they can use as the tyre gets older to change whether the car is understeering or oversteering, and they can use that uh, to help the car's balance, something which is completely fundamental to getting good lap times. Um, as well as that, there is a range of stuff for controlling the, the level of power that the engine produces, uh, and, uh, and, and a whole host of, of backup strategies because one of the things that is written into the sport is they have to drive the car alone and unaided, which means that if the car's going wrong, and, uh, and going wrong because a sensor has failed or some part of the car is starting to go awry, then things that would actually be utterly trivial for us to do back in the pits if we were just allowed a telemetry link to the car that would allow us to command a change, we're not allowed to do because the driver has to drive alone and unaided. So instead, we give him a complicated series of switch position changes to do that will turn a sensor off or fail a strategy or put it, in, put it into a backup mode. And, uh, and you'll see the drivers hooting around the lap of, at ridiculous speeds, playing this thing like a piano as we're, <laughs> telling them, as we're telling them what to do. And it is really impressive how much mental capacity they have uh, to be able just to talk to us, let alone to then do all the things that are necessary on this wheel as they drive around the lap. And you can actually tell who are the good drivers and who are the bad drivers because the bad ones slow down by about half a second a lap when they're doing anything like that. The good ones you just can't tell because they've got the capacity to keep driving almost as an automatic thing uh, while, they're, while they're mucking around the drift. Well, thanks for bringing it along, Ben. <laughs> well, one thing I just about the, the driver experience as well um, that sort of surprised me, I guess, when I saw it, is that, that James mentioned in terms of like the head position, but the body position, like the drivers are almost basically lying down 
with their neck like, tilted like this, which is what sort of keeps them facing forward. There's some great like videos on YouTube, I think, of like F1 cars cut in half, and we get to see the mm. the, the body position. So from a human performance side, that must it's be awful. a dream to work <laughs> with. Yeah. <laughs> and the legs are very high. The legs are high. Very high. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You're uh, you're crunching like a completely unnatural biomechanic position. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but and it's it and combined with the g-forces uh, that it's a terrible thing for your spine and if you think that these guys have been doing it for a while you keep on doing it you keep on working in this completely unergonomical position um for years and then you want to retire in your 30s something like that you don't want to be completely broken so we actually need to work with the drivers quite a bit uh, in terms of neck strength, in terms of uh, spine flexors, et cetera, in, or in order to avoid um, some of those issues uh, coming up. Because they're, well, it's not a healthy position. Uh, what sorry. Sorry. Saying that this year, and last year to some degree, but this year, you should see their eyes when they get out of the car after qualifying, because they are utterly exhilarated by the cars. This generation of car is obscenely quick and uh, much quicker than any other Formula One car in history. And they almost can't believe what they've done when they finish a qualifying lap at one of the challenging tracks this year. And they're, they're, they're sh shaking with the adrenaline of it and completely pumped up. And so they can't, they're sitting in a ridiculous position. <laughs> the forces on them are really, really high. The ergonomics are dreadful. The complexity is really high, but they're like, they're like children on Christmas Day when they get out of the car <laughs> and qualify. It, it's, it's brilliant seeing it. That's great. So, so with the new generation of cars and all the complexity, what, what, are, the, what are the stresses and strains apart from a, uh, keeping, you know, keeping care of their backs? And uh, not just for the drivers, but for other team members. Are there common injuries or are there common ways of mitigating uh, like performance loss? Back is one. Physiotherapists are one of like most uh, common sites uh, on the Formula One track. Uh, we actually deploy physios both with teams and drivers uh, just because that, that, is, that is one of the key, key things to work with. Uh, when we look at driver performance, we look at uh, actually six different areas um, of kind of holistic health and well-being as a foundation for performance. We look at physical activity, we look at nutrition, um, biomechanics, mm -hmm. obviously in Formula One, hugely important, sleep and recovery, mental energy, and general health. And um, at the center of it, we actually look at something we discussed in the beginning, which is what we call the core. Uh, that's the driver's motivation and commitment, uh, sense of identity and purpose, what keeps him driving, and, and that kind of determination we were talking about um, early on. But when we look at these different areas, we will actually try and optimize the driver's health and performance, looking for the marginal gains mm -hmm. and, and kind of taking a preventative approach in each one of those areas. And, and it is, um, yeah. Definitely, if you think about the stressors, yes, the G-forces, the biomechanics is definitely big ones. Um, these drivers are actually athletes. I remember when I started uh, in 2004, I think, uh, first working with them, I was, actually, probably 30s, so I guess it's loud, but um, I, I didn't really think of it as a sport. I thought of it's like, yeah, boys driving in cars and circles, and uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> couldn't be further away from the truth. Uh, it is one of the most demanding sports out there. Um, it's the, the complexity of the wheel alone, having to multitask. We also work with corporate populations, and multitasking can eat as much as 40% of your productivity. If you think about how much these guys are multitasking throughout a race, uh, it's incredible. Uh, the cognitive load 
is incredible. And uh, when we talk with the drivers, some of them say that, yeah, we actually, I mean, they're athletes, and they say, yeah, it's maybe 20% physical, 80% of it is actually cognitive, mental. It's about your ability to bounce back from setbacks and actually deal with the di difficult situations, but it's also just your reaction time. We actually train with them a lot um, uh, for the visual, <laughs> which is not great. We actually train with them with, uh, for instance, glasses that kind of give you a shade so that you have uh, limited vision, and uh, we throw things like tennis balls at them <laughs> <laughs> to test for the reaction times. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly complex and uh, stressful, both mentally and physically. And then when you add on top of that the travel, constant jet lag, the media, the fans, the whole circus, it's, it's impressive. Mm. I also think it's a lonely life they lead as well. It is, um, yeah. it's Formula One is a massive, massive team sport. And it's for those of us that are lucky enough to be on the engineering side of it, mm. it, is, it, it feels so tight and, and brilliant to be in this group of people who are all pushing in one direction. And the driver is part of that team as well. But, but it's not, not the same for the driver as it is for your engineering teammates. Uh, your engineering teammates, you're there in the evening with them, you go out for meals with them, uh, you laugh and joke all the way through the day, you give each other support, you can see when they're down, you can get someone to help if they're down and, and uh, maybe swap out their role for, for a few hours or whatever. There's a whole support structure for them. That, that allows an engineering or, or one of the many other roles in that's part of the Formula One team to, to feel supported by the team. The drivers are like gunslingers that are, that are absolutely exposed. Every moment of the weekend, from when they arrive on a Thursday till they go on a Sunday, they're absolutely exposed and out on their own. And, uh, and they have to keep strong mentally all the way through that. Everything they do is scrutinized by us, by the media, by everybody. And, uh, and yeah, we support them as much as we can. Um, but the team around them, the, the sort of physios that they work with, they're, they're almost like their family while they're traveling mm. and provide the driver with a support structure that they desperately need because their life is quite lonely. Yeah, that's true. They, they do become very close, and some of them, it's, it's like a 24 7 job. It's, uh, we have cases of um, coaches, performance coaches living with drivers. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a close relationship, which it has to be, um, in order for you to be able to have that trust and confidence also in, in each other during those um, stressful weekends, travel, etc. I think one of the, uh, on sort of the, the stress and constraint sort of question at the start as well, um, like one, of the, one of the biggest rule changes that sort of I, I worked through in F1 was the, the uh, getting rid of refueling and I can't remember what year it was, but um, and, and you know one of the um, one of the impacts of that in terms of like the the, the team like the, um, the race team was pit stops went from being this sort of relatively sort of you know leisurely let's say activity where you're waiting for the fuel hose to finish through to this you know absolute mad dash to get the uh, the tyres on in a, as as quicker quicker time as possible so um, that introduced a whole bunch of additional sort of stresses and strains on, on mechanics as well and you know these are people who we also rely on them to you know, build the car, um, take it apart. You know, if there's a if the car has an accident or a shunt, then they're they're the ones that have to sort of put it together in double quick time. So they're like this sort of mixture of mechanic and, and athlete as well in their own way. Um, and so you know some of the um, the, the stresses and strains on, on them in terms of like the equipment they use, 
um, and, and you know, sort of the, the, the loads they had to carry and that sort of thing has, has become a, a bigger part of, of F1 and sort of the wellness side of it in, in the time that I've been involved as well. Yeah, that's, that's actually been a huge change. Another one that is like, if you think in terms of stressors and what the driver has to go through is um, actually linked hydration. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that we were just discussing this earlier as well. Uh, one of the biggest changes was when, um, when they changed the regulations and suddenly the drivers had to lose weight. Um, and, and that was that was one of the kind of that that season in particular was one when we really struggled mm -hmm. uh, to maintain sort of a healthy athlete while <laughs> reducing their weight and and that was definitely um, definitely a challenge mm -hmm. um, hydration uh, they can lose up to two to three kilos per race which is insane take Singapore it's insane um, the cockpit gets it is in addition to being uncomfortable it is also extremely hot it's like 50 50 degrees or more celsius and uh you imagine sitting there uncomfortable sweating two to three kilos um the hydration actually becomes crucial yeah. we've got a rule change for next year that um for the first time uh measures the weight of the driver and the seat together and uh and it has to be above a certain weight so if you've got a featherweight driver you have to have a heavy seat um, and uh, and that's going to allow drivers to eat a few more buns over the Christmas break. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they could probably put on two, three kilos uh, and, and make no difference to the competitiveness of the car. And for a lot of them, that last two or three kilos is, is very tricky mm -hmm. to get. So their lives are going to be a lot more pleasant next season than they were in the last few. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, was, I was listening, actually, I was in the gym the last episode of the Beyond the Grid F1 podcast, Nico Rosberg was talking about yeah. marginal gains yeah, yeah. and losing weight in his leg muscles to give him that precious thousandth of a second. Yeah. He singled out um, your, your father as a, as a as key to his performance, or one, one of the, one of the like, key elements of his, his performance in that 2016 championship year, um, which I thought was really nice. And he tapped me, I was like, oh, I, I recognize that name because <laughs> 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 he's coming in today. So that, I thought that was really, really good. But it, yeah, everything from... Yeah, all the all the different. It is marginal gains. Yeah. I mean, I, I know he he stopped uh, going to the gym, working on his legs, and actually started uh, cycling just to kind of try and get get rid of uh, the muscle loss, which is uh, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, it, equally, I think he mentioned. I'm not sure if he mentioned that in that podcast, but he talks a lot about mindfulness mm -hmm. and, and the mental side of things, and how how that is actually that also plays a crucial role. So, Carl, I wanted to turn to you and ask about the um, innovations in, te in F1 technology, how it's being implemented so in other areas, you know, different materials, computing, navigation, medicine, you know, what, what are some of the areas that McLaren are exploring? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so there's, there's a few, I guess, innovations, I guess, that have come out of, come out of F1, almost uh, out of necessity in a way, because that's how we've, we've had to to solve problems that we can now apply in, in other industries so in terms of the technology specifically and um, we've already talked about sort of you know, control units and, and, and james you know, explained the fact that we can't send information back to you know to a car um, from the, the the garage or from you know um, through telemetry once it's on the track and that means any sort of um processing or any sort of you know algorithms or sort of um, modeling that we want to do on the car to help inform decision has to be done on, on the car itself um so really uh, you know f1 has sort of led the way in terms of you know doing that type of 
and processing um, you know, as close to sort of the, the edge as it's referred to as, as possible. And that's something that is now fairly sort of you know, prevalent in terms of you know, mobile phones carry a huge amount of, sort of processing power. You, know, you don't need to send data from your phone to the, the cloud in order for it to, to do clever stuff. So, um, and, and that, you know, that, that technology you know, helps us in um, healthcare. So you know, we do work with wearable health devices where you can do a lot of the, the heavy lifting processing on the, on the device so it doesn't have to send lots of data and consume the battery. Um, so that's you know, something born out of necessity in F1 that brings us sort of a huge you know, an advantage in terms of in, in other industries. Um, I guess the other one that sort of sprung to mind, I guess being a sort of a, a data person, I guess, is around like acquisition of, of real-time data. So, um, you know, engineers, um, systems engineers, race engineers are very impatient when it comes to wanting to see data. <laughs> so, you know, they want to see data as it, you know, as the um, you know, as, as the, the events unfolding, as the cars going around the track. So, so in my, my role, I used to watch races um, in our sort of mission control base in, in Woking. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you really literally saw things happening in the telemetry data before you saw it on the TV. Um, so that's, that's I guess, re real time. Um, and, and, you know, that, um, that philosophy, I suppose, of using real time data to make decisions is something that we, we apply in, um, in sort of public transport, so looking at you know, condition monitoring of, of vehicles. Um, again, sort of healthcare, you know, obviously a lot more complex than this, but in principle, why not monitor a, a human to understand how they're, and um, Anastina you know, can talk a lot about that as well. Um, and, and then I guess just again, sort of in terms of a personal experience. So um, when I was in, in racing, we were um, hosting a, a company from, uh, sorry, a delegation from, from another company and showing them about how we do sort of race strategy and decision making. And we said, well, look, a race is just like a, a giant, it's just a, a process, like an operation in a way. And we're trying to sort of you know, get the best outcome from this operation given the materials available to us. And the best way to do that is to understand it in real time, monitor it, and then you know, use that to make better decisions effectively. Um, and, and the sort of the, the visitors were saying, well, you know, we, we run like marketing campaigns, you know, we have like logistical operations, you know, why not monitor those, how they're panning out in real time um, to help us make better decisions rather than getting to the end of a, a process or an operation and go, oh, if only we'd known that, then we could have, we could have made this change, made this, you know, altered our strategy or however. So there's certainly sort of a, lo a lot of parallels. And, and you know, I mentioned the, I guess sort of the, the healthcare space has been something I'm particularly interested in. So yeah, we're, yeah, yeah all those things. Great, great. And you know, da data and, and humans. And data yeah. and human <laughs> performance. It's actually, um, we actually can't put anything, any wearables on the drivers when they're in the car, which makes it for us a little bit more challenging. So how we, how we measure for us, it's most important to actually measure them during the training, especially in the beginning of the season, we do uh, very comprehensive medical assessments, physi um, physical or fitness assessments, uh, cognitive assessments with the drivers um, across those different areas uh, that I just described earlier. Um, and uh, yeah, we do go into quite a bit of detail and, and quite a bit of even individual or personalized assessments based on the driver needs. So in the beginning of the season, we will, we will look at things like, uh, is it their VO2 maxes, their uh, body composition, um, but like for instance, before a race, for the three days leading to a race, we'll look at their hydration level. Um, and uh, look all the way leading to a race and right after the race uh, in order to, to see how they're doing. 
So we are being able to track and monitor. I mean, every one of us is able to track and monitor more and more of our, our performance. We can look at heart rate variability. We can look at recovery. Frequent recovery has, the monitoring of frequent recovery has uh, improved incredibly in the last couple of years even. Um, and, and all of that added together is sort of the interesting part, mm. um, especially when you also take, um, take the cognitive side. So we can even use um, like um, psychomotor vigilance tasks, tests uh, in order to see whether we uh, measure the driver's reaction times, for instance. They're basically like games on your mobile phone um, where you test reaction times. And uh, combining that data with the level of hydration, uh, with their blood markers, with their uh, physical fitness, et cetera, uh, with how, they well they how well they slept or the how badly they slept or recovered from the last uh, race or the last training. Uh, combining all of that is actually uh, where it starts to get interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, so, it's so much more to, to the human side than, than I was expecting. Um, <laughs> 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 is, is that maybe in line with, say, the, the because of the, the increased stresses of the modern cars or because maybe the driver aids that we spoke about earlier are being, you know, that they're, they're, they're decreasing. There's, there seems like a, a, an increase in, in human performance analysis. I don't know. I think it's actually a reflection. It's, it's, it's interesting. We've been re um, comparing Formula One and some other motorsports lately, um, doing some research, for instance, comparing Formula One to NASCAR. And uh, the differences between the drivers are actually quite significant um, in the favor of Formula One drivers. Mm -hmm. So Formula One drivers are clearly the most um, sophisticated and <laughs> advanced <laughs> athletes <laughs> um, compared, to, compared to some other motorsports researchers. And uh, I don't know if it's a reflection of the sport, uh, sport itself and the sophistication of Formula One mm -hmm. um, as a sport. I mean, you are pushing everything to the margin. Like you're really looking at the marginal gains uh, in everything, in terms of the car, in terms of the, in terms of the driver. Mm. I don't know. Do you have any views on that? Well, no, it's, it's all true. I mean, it's a, it's a stupidly data-driven sport. The, uh, it has to be because mm. we have to, uh, we have to model the car and understand the physics behind it, uh, and uh, and then in order to check that we've understood the physics behind it, we have to gather data from it and compare one against the other uh, to know whether or not it's performing as we expect it to. And that generates terabytes of data continually, not just at the track, um, but also in wind tunnels with uh, all the data you gather off wind tunnels, um, inside the computational fluid dynamics region of aerodynamics, uh, in all the vehicle modeling, um, the driver simulators, uh, Every week, just more and more and more data is gathered and looked at and understood and studied. Um, and what's quite remarkable is we, with all that sophistication, uh, with all those well-educated, highly paid engineers studying the data in all the uh, level of detail that they're capable of, you still get the driver picking up that the engine's going to fail before we can see <laughs> it, um, just because they they can feel it, and they 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 can feel they can feel things that we can't see, um, and uh, and we can't see it even when they tell us they can feel it. Um, I mean, a lot of the time we can, but it's it's still remarkable what what the driver is capable of picking up just with just with the senses uh, in the body. Yeah, I think just to. Just to chime in, something that James mentioned. I think for me, 
again, the, the one of the most interesting sort of technical challenges in F1 is those though all those different sources of data, so like wind tunnel, um, you know, CFD, like fluid dynamics, um, simulation and simulators as well. So a lot, a lot of teams have sort of you know driver in the loop simulators, um, and then the track, which you know in some ways is like the the, the um, the data is like gold dust, but in other ways, it's very sort of noisy and unreliable. And understanding how all of those different data sources correlate with each other or, or don't, and, and when things are, things aren't going so well, um, you know, we each each of those data sources has its own limitations. So wind tunnels aren't full size. Um, you know, um, you're making certain assumptions and approximations in CFD, and you're trying to understand the relationships between all those different data sets. Is yeah, I think yeah, it's a fascinating challenge, and I think where a lot of the like foundations of performance can, can come from. Right, we've, we've got a bit of time uh, for some questions from the audience. So um, we've got a couple of mics. Um, I'll saw I saw your hand go up first. So <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, you in the blue t-shirt, and then you the lady in the white t-shirt at the back there. Good evening. Um, that, was, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad I came. Um, the question I've got is this. In our road cars, everything's been pushed towards electric. Um, and we're told that in, in this country they want to phase out uh, petrol and diesel cars by 2040. Now, at the moment, we have Formula E, which is obviously fairly junior and um, I don't think comparable to Formula One at all at the present time, except that quite a few drivers who haven't done so well in Formula One have gone over there, possibly. <laughs> um, I could possibly comment. Um, but do you foresee a time when we might have an electric Formula One? Me? Um, yes, because uh, just put yourself forward 20 years, there's going to be no internal combustion engines on the road. And it's going to be inconceivable that we're going to be banging away with, with with pistons and sparks and petrol um, when when it's going to be possible to make utterly, you know, ridiculously fast cars which are just electric. Um, so it's, it's inevitable that that's what's going to come and it's going to be fun and exciting as it does. It's just a question of what the roadmap is to get there. At the moment we have a hybrid engine uh, which is, as, as internal combustion engines go, is a miracle of efficiency. You've struggled to find anything to match it uh, outside of maybe some stuff in some universities or or huge stationary uh, engines in in things like supercars. So, um, so they're, they're a miracle, but we we're definitely going to end up all electric. It's just a question of how long and uh, and by what what steps. I think it's going to be pretty exciting. And I suspect, too, that the current generation of fans who've grown up with this sport, who love the noise, are going to <laughs> going to rapidly be overtaken by by younger people who are just don't associate cars with noise and, mm. uh, and for whom it isn't going to be an issue that these things are screaming around the track quietly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think um, if, as an engineer, it's going to be brilliant fun doing that. I agree. Cause I think the, the alternative is, is you know, this whole thing about you know, F1 and being a sort of um, you know, an advert for good science and engineering. I guess the alternative is that F1 ends up as like a 
a bit of a relic, you know, sort of an old-fashioned pastime, you know, like, mm. uh, I don't want to insult any other sport, but, you know, <laughs> you, I think you, you know what I'm getting at. Um, and I think just the, the other side of that as well is obviously there's the whole, um, as well as, you know, sort of sustainability and sort of electrification of, of the vehicles as well, then, you know, F1 teams in the future have to think about, like, sustainability of, of themselves as, as teams and operations as well. So, you know, I think already, you know, the, sort of the powers that be try and manage you know, the calendar to try and sort of you know back-to-back -back races where possible to minimize sort of travel although it means like long periods away from home for for, for for the team and so on so i think the the teams and how they operate themselves they have a i guess like a, a responsibility i know that well i can't speak for all teams i know mclaren thinks quite a lot about its own sort of corporate sustainability so that's another way that f1 teams i guess can lead the way in that okay thank you we have a techie question for James. Um, I was wondering what your opinions were of the move to 18-inch wheels and how that might affect the car's dynamics and everything. Are you going to have to start from scratch with in terms of the suspension and things like that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 no, it's, I mean, it's a, a sort of thing that you think, well, if you, if you don't, if you've never been involved in a car design, you think, well, how hard can that be? You're just changing from 13-inch to 18-inch. But, it will change everything. It will change absolutely everything. Um, so uh, a lot of the aerodynamics of the car are go on inside the, the wheels at the moment, inside the drums, um, uh, and uh, and that that volume is going to get a lot bigger. The brakes, you can at the moment the brakes are very very space constrained. Uh, it's possible to make good brakes inside a Formula One car, but but you, you have to go, you've probably seen how many tiny little holes we drill inside the brake discs. That's to get them to live, uh, given the duty cycles that we put them through. And, uh, and there'll suddenly be a whole heap more space for brakes. Uh, the suspension has to be completely revisited. Uh, the tyres themselves, uh, going from uh, the, the sort of big balloony things that we have today to a much more low-profile tyre, that's a that's a big challenge because uh, although everyone thinks that low profile tires are sporty, they're actually not as good <laughs> as big balloony things. And uh, and so making a, making high performance tire with those different constraints is going to be a big challenge for the tire company and a big challenge for us then to adapt to the different characteristics that those tires are going to give. And everything we do with the Bricker Dynamics, the suspension design, and the aerodynamic design is all, all of it starts and ends with the tire performance. So, so it's not an exaggeration to say it will change everything. Um, well, it keeps us in a job, you know. You'd <laughs> 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 be bored otherwise. <laughs> I'm sure it will be fine. They'll look cool, won't they? So. I think that's where like, um, the, the team's capabilities around like simulation and, and modeling you know, comes into its own as well, where you can, you know, James talked about the, almost like the two-year lead time for, for, for new car design, and a lot of that lead, the, sort of the early phase of that lead time was spent in you know, sort of vehicle modeling world and sort of offline simulation, sort of driver-in-the-loop simulation, and being able to sort of iterate on designs, test them out, see what works, what doesn't. So that's where like, the team's yeah, like modeling simulation capabilities and I guess the ability, you know, the ability to, I guess, interpret, manage that data in a sort of relatively quick turnaround time. That's what you know, it really comes into its own. Okay, thank you. And the, the, the lady in the back there. 
Um, yeah, thank you very much. It's been a very uh, insightful and interesting talk. So thank you very much for that. Uh, my question might seem a very generic one. Um, and I know James has already spoken about adding fans to vehicles. Uh, but if you could change one area of Formula One for each of your respective areas, what would it be? Do they only get one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, top one for now. Um, so I've got, can I have more than one? Um, so so <laughs> the, I think f for me, like, um, I would, with F, I mean, and, and F1 has come a long way in this regard over the last few years, um, but I would make the fan experience better in F1. Um, so I think F1 historically has been sort of quite, a, for to me personally, quite a closed shop when it comes to, you mean the people, not the road people? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I like those two. But, um, but yeah, so the, the people who watch F1 and not just people who go to races, people who consume at home. Um, I, I think, yeah, F1 and, and everyone, like the teams, um, I think lots of people have, have got a role to play in that. But so that's one thing I would I would change. Um, Do you want to get one? Yeah, okay. Oh. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would love to measure driver performance and dynamic brakes during the race. I would love to see that. Uh, what happens to the drivers, what happens in their body, what happens in their head um, during the race, I would be interested to see that. Yeah. It's impossible to just pick one. <laughs> There's loads of things that would be fun to do. Um, I, I, I won't waste the time. I'll stick with the fan one that I came <laughs> up with earlier. But, but I'm, I'm really where Carl is, to be honest. Mm. I think this. I think that the sport's had a certain format for quite a while, which has lots going for it, and uh, and is is really fun and exciting in many ways. But sometimes I come back from a weekend where, for me, as someone sitting on the pit wall, um, the weekend has been completely compellingly brilliant, and then I'll pick up a pacer and read that it was boring. <laughs> and, mm. and if someone could get inside my head. Uh, or any of us who are lucky enough to be on the inside of the sport and get the, the, the massive animal excitement of it, um, then every single race would be, would be like cocaine. And, uh, <laughs> and you'd want to keep coming back for more and more and more of it. So if we could find ways to get that, that would mm. be great. It just really reminded me, I remember it really well, the first time after, after working with, with, with McLaren Racing, the first time I watched a race at home on TV without any sort of data to look at. It was baffling and infuriating. So, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so that's, that's pretty much all we've got time for. Um, but I thought we could close with heading back to the, the Year of Engineering campaign, and it's all about inspiring the next generation of engineers or uh, human performance scientists. Um, and you know, there may be some of you in the audience now or some of your children who are aspiring. So is there any advice that you would give to the, to the next generation for, um, in, in your respective fields about some of working in your, in your areas? James? Um, well, I'd say to anyone who is interested in a career in engineering, whatever field, definitely, definitely go for it. Um, because I, there's very few branches of engineering that are a solitary, uh, a solitary activity. They are almost everyone you can think of is a collaborative affair. It's a, it's a thing where, where a group of people will come together and, and make something happen that would be completely impossible individually 
and where where at the end of it you look at it and you think, "Oh, did I really do? That? Did I really have a part in that?" And you look at it and you think, "There's loads of that. I don't have the first idea how that happened." And it was what your friends did and all the people that you you had the fun and privilege of working with. And and so I would I would encourage any of anyone who's thinking of being involved in that career to do it. I um at university, lots of my friends went off and worked in the city, and uh, they're definitely a lot richer than I am. <laughs> but but they they don't want to talk to me about their jobs. Um, they want to ask me about mine. And they have a sense that everything they did was useless, and uh, and that they 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 just want to know what it's like being in this group of people that get to do this remarkable thing and, and create something. And um, and so I would I would encourage anybody to, to feel that thrill and be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I would say stay curious. That's one of the traits we didn't discuss about the drivers, by the way, but that is something that does set apart brilliant drivers from the really good drivers. Um, they keep asking questions. They, they're they curious about every single little detail of how the car will work and what we might be changing. And uh, I think that curiosity about car performance is in kind of like the engineering side, but then also the curiosity about how your body works and how your mind works and how you might, you as a person might become just a little bit better. Um, that's, that curiosity is something that, yeah, just stay curious, ask questions. Yeah, um, and uh, I guess a, a couple of things. I think um, absolutely agree with what's been said already. And I would say in terms of the, the, the thrill of that challenge, I think pers- I would say sort of pursue what really interests you. You know, maybe something you there's a temptation to go, well, I'm really interested in this aspect of engineering or science, but feel like that's probably a better bet or a safer career choice or whatever. But I think if you follow follow your interests and you have passion for that, then it will you know, it will breed, breed success. Um, in terms of like career in, in motorsport, um, you know, there are lots of obviously F1, you know, there's not too many F1 teams, but there are lots of other motorsport teams, like lots of motorsport series like F3, GT, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, plenty of ways to get involved, whether it's sort of volunteering, like work experience, or you know, like internships, that sort of thing. So there's there's, there's plenty of um, I guess sort of plenty of scope out there to sort of get involved and, and get in contact with, with, with those teams. And, and then just again from a personal spec- perspective, in terms of like data science, software engineering, I think one thing we didn't talk about in terms of how the technology landscape has evolved mm-hmm. is like the explosion of like open source technology, so technologies, you know, cutting edge software, cutting edge like data science tools that are completely open and available to the world now, along with really sort of great tutorials, like courses on how to use them, how to how to get involved. So, you know, the, the, the knowledge in those fields is so accessible now mm-hmm. that I just encourage people to, to yes, yeah, they, they be curious, um, get, you know, get involved, like take part in like team Team activities, you know, get other people um, working in the teams and so on, and yeah, really go for it as, as far as well. Fantastic, fantastic interview. So, um, please g- give our give our panel a warm round of applause. <laughs> and.